Welcome to the Honest Podcast. I'm this week's host, Eddie Webb, and with me are nobody. Nobody at all. It's just me. Uh, I have I have seized control of the airwaves. I, ha- I have taken over the podcast, so it's all in my hands. So it's only me, only I can have it. <laughs> well, the reason why I'm doing this actually is because uh, it's been a while since I've done a design diary. And, well, of course, it's always awesome to talk to uh, my colleagues and, and go over a wide variety of topics, some of which may even involve Onyx Path. Um, when these design diaries, at least for me, um, it's, it's honestly sometimes just easier for me to kind of just put it all out there, right? Because... I mean, we could set up so that, you know, like uh, uh, Dixie or Matthew or Danielle are, are feeding me questions so I can talk about the thing. Um, and we have done that sometimes. But uh, with these, uh, I like to kind of talk a bit more about kind of where my head is at on a project. And uh, so it, it's it's on topic in the sense it's all going to be about one design idea. But... It allows me also room to kind of uh, of ramble and go into different places of my mind because design is is a messy process. It's it's not something that's uh, clean and easy at times. It, each each project is a little different in their own way. Uh, so let me start uh, by saying I'm going to talk about uh, threats and curves today, which is another uh, a Pugmire book coming out. The next big Pugmire book. Uh, coming out, uh, and, but uh, before I get into that, to kind of finish my earlier thought, see, already I'm kind of rambling and bouncing around. Uh, Threads and Curves is actually a good example of a project that doesn't quite fit into any mold. I personally feel, or at least my experience has been, that every project is a little different. We have processes at Onyx Path. I have certainly helped to to create and implement many of them so I'm, I'm deeply aware of the processes that we have available to us but the idea of ideal process that they should be flexible uh, that they should bend to the needs of the project the project shouldn't necessarily bend to the needs of the process uh, um, in truth it's a little column a, a little column b right like uh, uh, we can't say, well, this project needs 75 million pieces of art, so you know we just need to bend the process to make them happen. So I mean, it, there, there's outer limits to both of those, um, and, and also we can't say, well, this project really needs something, but you know it's mildly inconvenient for us to change our process, so absolutely everything must bend to what we needed to do from a process perspective. The reality is kind of in the the middle ground, right? Uh, there's not always uh, a clear path. But Threats and Curves is, I think, a, a, a slightly better illustration of uh, a, a little more kind of outre process. At least, again, for me, this is the first time I've done a project like this. So uh, let's back up, talk about... I keep mentioning Threats and Curves. What is that? Uh, uh, for many of you, this may be the first time you've actually even heard those words. Uh, uh, they don't know what, what that means. So let me give you a little bit of a history and break it down. Um, Threats and Curves is 
for Realms of Pugmire. Uh, and it is basically, it's a collection of enemies. It's a monster book, to use the vernacular. A, a manual of monsters, if you will. Uh, and so basically, it's just a big old collection of, of, of antagonists to throw into your game. And interestingly, this is something that I kind of wanted to do in first edition, right? Uh, it was something that I had on mind. Uh, Rich and I kind of idly talked about, and I think uh, um, a couple of people on this path had also kind of had mentioned it at one point because it's such a classic, clean idea of a book. Here's just a big old book with a bunch of things to fight in it. It, it, it's an easy sell. It's a, it's the reason why it's a classic is because they are generally perennially useful. If a collection of monsters is done well, a creature collection, a collection of creatures, if you will, uh, is done well, uh, they not only are convenient stat blocks for fight scenes, uh, but they imply story hooks and indeed ways you can build stories around them. Uh, they provide quick uh, drop-in things when players go uh, off script and you have to improvise. Uh, there, it's a lot of utility. It, it's frankly it's just a very useful kind of product that sometimes does really well sales-wise. Sometimes people just don't see a need for it. depends on the, the way you run your games. It's extremely useful for a very specific style of gameplay. Or I should say specific collection of styles of gameplay because I've, I've always felt that there's more utility than, than perhaps people believe because people who say, oh, well, I don't tend to run combat games, so I don't need a whole bunch of things to fight. Sure, but you may need uh, uh, ideas for scenarios to build them around. Uh, for me, um, admittedly, a lot of my fantasy gaming has been moderately to heavily inspired by things like uh, comic books and fantasy novels, which, when you boil them down, ultimately becomes various forms of fight scenes as moments of climax as the plot progresses. Uh, it's not universal, but uh, particularly if you watch like a Marvel movie or the D&D film or the Witcher series, ultimately a lot of it builds up towards some kind of big climactic fight. And so having pre-made characters that you can build a story around to lead up to that climactic fight is valuable and useful. Uh, uh, but it, we never got around to it in, in first edition, and, and there were a, a couple of reasons why. Uh, one is that uh, for all of the utility I mentioned that these kinds of books have, they also provide utility inside of other books. It's a relatively easy way to add value to a book. So... Most every core rule is going to have a selection of antagonists to use. Uh, and so with Monarchies of Mao and Pugmire, there were two books. They were both core books, so they both had to have those. Uh, I did it again with Pirates of Pugmire. I did it again with um, Squeaks in the Deep. Uh, even with uh, things like um, Adventures of Curious Cats, uh, when Dixie developed that, um, most of the adventures have additional uh, bespoke antagonists in it. Um, when Matthew uh, Dawkins developed... Uh, Pants uh, guides new pioneers. Again, they were new to that adventure. Um, animals in there, or uh, antagonists in there. I even put some in the jumpstart. Uh, so uh, at the time, I didn't quite 
see i had put so many of these things in little places and pockets um that by the time i was like okay maybe it's time to kind of pull those all together um there was the wider conversation of well maybe we should also be doing a new edition uh so uh that's something that when rich and i started talking about doing uh, the new edition of realms of Pugmire, i was like okay well this is actually one area that i had concerns about because uh the ogl 5e based monster map is kind of borked uh there are lots of different opinions on this and you're gonna get lots of different uh, uh takes on how this plays out so i'm gonna give you my take uh but before i go into that um i want to say that uh this is one of the places where game design looks like science but is secretly art uh it seems like if you say we're talking about numbers and how this number relates to that number and how these numbers intersect uh, uh, and statistical analysis and whatnot, that can feel like it's coming from a very math scientific basis. Uh, that if you just change the right number, combats will go in a certain way. Uh, and certainly if you're coming from uh, designs like say video game design, it, 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 it nudges a bit closer to that. Uh, but uh, one of the things that tabletop role-playing games do is that they, they, you have to account for a wild variety of flexibility. Uh, this is something that I often call the white room problem. And you may have heard me in various episodes of the Pathcast in the past talk about uh, white room balance in a very dismissive way. Uh, and, and that's what this is referring to, the white room balance idea is that if you put two characters in a completely blank room and have them fight who should win uh and that's where a lot of the critical balance design ethos comes from the idea that these two people should have a roughly even fight failing to take into account that good rpg scenarios and arguably most rpg scenarios don't have people in a completely blank features room fighting uh that doesn't mean it never happens certainly i've been in games where after a, a number of fights it's like okay yeah there's just another room we just fighting um but usually there's other things i have to get across the room to do another thing i have to get to this uh, object in the room i have to save somebody i have to run away from this other thing the the building is collapsing there's something else going on beyond just i walk into a blank room and then two characters fight until one of them dies and then i walk into the next blank room that's not how most games are played consistently and repeatedly. Again, you occasionally have kind of blah encounters. We all do it. I've run them. I've played them. It happens. But that's not the only way you play. It's not like an old school JRPG where you get sucked into another screen and you just trade menu decisions back and forth until one of you falls over. There's usually something else going on. So... The idea of white room balance, I, I'm already dis dismissive of. Now, that said, uh, that doesn't mean that balance is invalid or even undesirable. It's just that it's not the whole picture of encounter design. So when I'm talking about uh, the math of OGL-based monsters, I'm talking about only one slice of that design. And when I look at it, um, we have this problem where uh, the challenge rating of an OGL monster is equivalent to four characters of that same level. 
except that that's just not true, right? Um, part of the problem is that uh, because of that conceit, you get into weird fractional challenge ratings. You get uh, challenge rating one half at one point. Um, uh, so that that's that's it, that presumably they requires two antagonists to uh, challenge rating one half to balance out four level one characters. Uh, but what really happens is that there's kind of a wedge that occurs. Uh, so the middle of the challenge rating range generally does fit fairly accurately into that. Uh, uh, you know, your challenge ratings, uh, three to seven roughly, um, generally do map out to a challenge rating three monsters, probably pretty good for four characters, um, seven, so on. Uh, but on the one end of that wedge, they're usually fairly disposable characters. They usually get knocked down pretty quickly at any challenge rating or any level. And then at the other end, you get your boss monsters effectively where it's meant to be a really tough challenge, even if they are at an equivalent level. So that's one problem with the math is that the way the numbers are calculated, uh, uh, that wedge actually doesn't map out. Uh, the, the second problem is that it's really hard to balance an encounter that way if you don't have exactly four characters. And every game I've played in, it has been either three or five or six. Weirdly, I very rarely play in games with just four players. Uh, it's usually on the other sides of that number. So if you're a game master running for three players or one person drops out, or if you're running for five or six players, and again, if balance is something that is ostensibly a key design of the system, uh, that becomes very tricky. So what do I do if I have a challenge rating four monster and five challenge level five characters? You know, to, to, the, you start to have to do fractions and, and equivalents. I mean, so it's like, you know, we're, we're now looking at, it should be 4.3, but that's not really a, a real number. So you have to go to the next level, which is challenge rating five, but that may be a little too high. Uh, and finally, um, there's uh, uh, the, 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 way that spells and attacks and hit points all scale is is completely disconnected in OGL systems. Uh, so uh, this is part of the reason why, for example, uh, fighters, warriors, rogues generally are better at lower levels, but Wizards and clerics and warlocks are better at higher level because over time they will consistently get better access to more efficient and higher levels of damage while the other characters will not scale up as well. So um, with all of that, thing, and I've talked before about how that was one of the things I wanted to change second edition, so it didn't make sense to put out a whole bunch of monsters and then a couple of years later turn around and redo all the math. So like, let's, let's hold off until the new edition. Uh, so that was one of the things I did in second edition. And I've talked about this before, but to kind of recap, um, for Realms of Pugmire specifically, uh, what I did was uh, I recalibrated challenge rating to opponent level. So a level one monster, level one enemy, uh, is equivalent roughly to a level one character. Again, I don't believe in white room balance, so those are situations where that level one enemy is going to be much better, situations where it's going to be much worse. Um, 
and then I uh, took some tags that I used in first edition, but I, I've leveraged them more heavily in this edition, uh, the idea of encounter tags. Uh, originally, this was just um, uh, minion and then uh, legendary, which are kind of just ways to hack the characters. It's now been explicitly uh, reframed to this is a tag to put on characters. And you can put it on any enemy. So if you want hordes of zombies that you can mow down, just give them the minion tag, adjust their mechanics accordingly, and you can wipe those guys out. If you want to have the boss zombie at the end of a mission, put a legendary tag on them, and they're going to be a much harder fight. Uh, and legendary tag is very, 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 very roughly basically sending it back to where the challenge rating was intended to be. So it's it's a legendary character is going to be roughly equivalent for about three or four player characters at the same level. Whereas minions, uh, uh, there's really no equivalent because they only have effectively one uh, stamina point. So they're, they're designed to take a one hit. So really you put a number of minions equal to roughly how long you want the combat to last. Uh, they're not going to be a meaningful danger to the players. Your main goal is to see if you can maybe reduce some of the resources like stamina points or uh, spell slots a little bit. That's really what they, they kind of just weaken characters to get to the more meaningful fights, which is what minions tend to do in fiction. Uh, the other thing I did in second edition was I actually have a spreadsheet where I calculated um, how much damage a character can do per level, uh, and then therefore how much damage a uh, enemy can absorb, and so on. Uh, so like the the uh, defense on a typical enemy scales directly with player character uh, proficiency bonus. So ideally, if an PC and an enemy keep pace in uh, level throughout all their encounter history, the player will have roughly the exact same percentage chance of hitting them each time. That it won't change in each direction. Uh, also, as extremely high level average player character damage increases, uh, enemy hit points roughly keep pace. So a enemy at level 1 fighting a player character level 1 and an enemy at level 10 fighting a player character level 10 with no significant changes across the board, and they're all roughly average, the fight should take about the same amount of time. And that's my goal here. Um, and I calculate this on the idea that uh, um, player characters will hit about 75% of the time uh, and do about 50% of their damage. Um, so a, a combat round where those numbers pan out should take about three to four rounds, which feels like about as long as a fight needs to last until it stops being interesting. Again, for minions, that goes down to roughly one or two rounds. Uh, for legendary characters, that goes up to eight or nine rounds, seven or eight rounds, uh, because those fights are doing something differently, but th th that's roughly how much space they should take. And again, this is all just a starting point. There's, there's lots of variations and tweaks around this. Um, so uh, that was kind of the base of the math design. And so when I redid Realms of Pugmire, um, uh, I asked the writing in this case, it was David Castro, uh, to recalibrate all of the characters based on this new math. 
Uh, and then, of course, we had room to introduce some new character, new enemies as well, and, we, and uh, they did a great job of doing all of that. Uh, so, when it came time to do threats and curves, in my head, it was pretty straightforward. It is okay, let's figure out how book needs to be, uh, figure out how many words each of these write-ups roughly takes, divide those numbers together to figure out how many monsters we're looking at, hire a bunch of writers to pick up X number of word count, and go. Uh, and it was not at all that simple. It was, it was actually quite quite challenging. Um, and there's lots of reasons for that. Uh, so um, to start with, I didn't want it to be just a book of stat blocks. Uh, I wanted it to do a couple of other things. Uh, one is I wanted to uh, have room to expand what uh, the encounter structure looks like, um, particularly uh, things like adding tags and whatnot. Um, so uh, as we, we're looking at 15, 20 stat blocks, you know, this one thing requires a certain set of rules. It makes sense to leave that bespoke. When you're spreading out over what turned out to be over 150 of them, you start to want to maybe template those and codify certain things as, as tags and structures because you're looking at a lot more points of data. Uh, so I want to make sure I had room for that. Um, I also wanted to make sure that uh, I had converted all of the other enemies from first edition that weren't earmarked for another book. Uh, so that way, by getting uh, Realms of Pugmire and then uh, Threats and Curs, you would have nearly everything from first edition converted to second edition rules. Uh, and also give me a chance to kind of update and polish those a bit more. And then finally, I wanted to make sure that there, uh, there were not only implicit story tags uh, with the monsters, but I also wanted to make sure that uh, it was clearer what people do with them and also uh, make the implicit story hooks a little more explicit and, and offer some actual encounters using the enemies we wrote up. Uh, so uh, that was the plan. And immediately I ran into some uh, structural problems. So the first was uh, I had to figure out what I was converting and how. So I poured through every single uh, Realms of Pugmire book that where enemies had stat blocks. I did not go through anything where a character was mentioned. I, I felt that was too deep. Um, if, if I mentioned a character somewhere but never gave a stamp block, I just decided I would leave that go. Um, but particularly if, uh, if it was a character in an adventure, a character in a jumpstart, or uh, whatever, I want to make sure that those were all collected. Uh, and so um, there's a lot of, for example, Pirates of Pugmire stuff ends up making it in there because that's a fairly decent amount of, of adventure stuff in there. Uh, the only exception, uh, exceptions uh, were um, I did not do that for um, Monarchies of Mal or Squeaks in the Deep. Uh, Squeaks in the Deep was because it just came out relatively recently, um, but also uh, I have plans for rodents in the future, and same with cats, is that uh, I'm actually, we're actually in the middle of working on uh, the Curious Cats of Mal, which is the next uh, reinvention of the Monarchies of Mal for second edition. So I want to make sure that the things that were kind of bookmarked for them were, were in the spaces. The other condition I added 
was um, I did not want to touch the Cult of Laboratory. I know it's a favorite. I love the Cult of Laboratory too. I think a lot of people love the Cult of Laboratory. Uh, but over the years, it's become a little oversaturated. Every single book has some reference to the cult. Uh, when I always imagine him to be really primarily a uh, rodent's antagonist. Uh, so um, I, I'm kind of making sure that moves into that space a little more clearly now. Um, so there's still side references, but I really, really, really pulled back heavily on them uh, in Threats and Curse. I wanted there to be – this to be – we're not covering old grounds. We're doing completely new grounds, not – tying everything to one because the cult was starting to look like it was this massive organization to cover the whole world and it's like no it's just a bunch of dumb rats who thinks they figured out how to do science and in fact have no clue what they're doing right it was it's it, so it's, it's a kind of really the, the joke is running too far so i had to kind of pull them back to uh, reframe a bit more uh so uh, I, when I hired everyone to do everything uh basically what we ended up doing is uh i had everyone pitch ideas after I allocated out the other pieces. I was like, whatever's left, just pitch me ideas. Um, and so we had a mutual uh, Discord, uh, and people just threw ideas at me. I tried to put them all in one place. Uh, but that was over the course of a couple of months, and it's it was just a lot of things. Not everyone was paying attention to everything. I even struggled to keep track of them all at a certain point in time. Uh, and so uh, I recognized even when I was going into it, that I was going to have to do a certain amount of reviewing all of these, realizing that people accidentally designed into similar spaces and uh, account for those. Um, and the other one, of course, was that uh, both the encounters and the new rules, I couldn't really solidify those until everything else was done. Um, turns out with the instruction we were able to kind of where i put all the new rules i we were able to kind of do most of that um and then i did a heavy pass to get that sewn up but the encounters we just really couldn't start until i knew which ones were to make the final cut into the book uh so it ended up being a, a kind of a second stage for that um but uh, as a result um a, a couple things kind of popped up as uh, so the first was that uh common tricks became more is, is going to become more distinct in uh, Threats and Curse. Uh, so in every edition of Pugmire now, there's things like, okay, if they're immune to this damage, if they low light division, uh, if, if they're resistant, that was all kind of in a line that were just kind of collected called, you know, tricks that are they're frequently known. Uh, that's now explicitly a category called common tricks for enemies. Uh, uh, and so it has all the ones mentioned before, uh, dark vision, immune, low light vision, resistant damage, uh, weak to damage. Um, Sense sensing is explicitly now moved into common tricks. Uh, so, um, and that's the one that we're actually division, but uses smell instead of sight. Uh, and I felt fine with that because retroactively, that has now become a trick for dogs in Realms of Pugmire. So it made sense. Okay, that's a common thing that all can do. The, the, but two other ones ended up moving to that category because they just showed up so often. Uh, one is unflappable. Uh, which, if you've owned or have read Pirates of Pugmire, that is the you're immune to gunpowder panic, or the thing that every time you hear a loud explosion, you have to make a charisma saving throw to avoid just freaking out. Because a fair number of enemies migrated from Pirates of Pugmire specifically, they inherited some of the Pirates of Pugmire rules, uh, so 
unflappable came up so often, it makes sense to, and also because it's such a simple rule, it's just that they're immune to this. Um, it didn't need a whole write-up every single time, so uh, uh, it made sense to kind of just make that into a common trick. And also, Gunpowder Panic gets a short write-up in the rules as well as uh, Seaworthiness, just because a few monsters actually engage with Seaworthiness, although... Things like the pistols and uh, sailing and all that is actually going to be in a future book down the line. So it is coming. It's not here yet. But because it's a new edition, I, I know where things are going to go now. I can say things like, okay, let's just go ahead and reference it here and point to another book down the line because I know where that's going to slot in and it'll be fine. Uh, the other one's multiple attacks. Um, this f was kind of uh, written up alternatively as Battle Master and or, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Battle Frenzy and Master Battle Frenzy and things like that. Um, and, and basically, it's variations on this monster. Just had to make an attack, use specific attacks multiple times, or just have multiple attacks. Uh, and again, it was so frequent that I just go ahead and moved it to a common trick. So now, multiple attacks is just a, a common trick. It's again, straightforward. This monster attacks twice with its claws, or this monster makes one claw and one bite attack. It, it doesn't need a whole big chunky right up and and by doing those moves it allowed me to make sure that the tricks that are actually listed under the enemy were a little more useful there was there, less uh, a cruft less um pointless verbiage taking up that space uh the other is tags um tags uh aren't have that changed from how they're done in realms of where we simply expanded them um and also uh and to degree clarified them and uh as a note because of the timing in which it was structured, um, I still had a chance to go through and adjust Realms of Pugmire to better match up with this. So uh, if you saw the playtest version of Realms of Pugmire, you may see some of this stuff has actually made it into uh, the laid-out version of Pugmire because I got a chance, it gave a chance to kind of move things around. Not all of it, but some elements of it have made it over. So the idea that encounter tags are an explicit thing, and you only have one of them. Uh, so... Uh, Everyone who doesn't have one of these automatically has the enemy tag. And the enemy tag basically is you're not one of the other encounter types. Uh, but this is where Minion and Legendary uh, lived. Uh, and they mostly have the same rules. Um, one thing that did change uh, because it was unclear in the manuscript, and I was changed it. I was going to change it anyway, but this is a good time to change it for both books. Uh, is that legendary doesn't multiply their damage; it multiplies how many attacks they have. And now that multiple attacks is a common trick, so you have more reason to say they just have the multiple attack trick. Uh, because when we were doing the design, we were realizing and say, okay, so this guy hit, every time he hits you, he does like 50 points of damage. And like, no, it's he has multiple attacks. That was more kind of what I always intended with it. So now I clarified that. Uh, but we have two new um, encounter tags. One is Colossal, which, again, we got from uh, Pirates of Pugmire, uh, which is different from Legendary. Legendary is this is a more powerful character. Colossal is this is a larger character. There's some overlap in those um, because that does mean like you know, they both get more stamina points. Uh, um, they, they both have do more damage. Uh, but Colossal uh, has a lot of smaller... But very specific modifications, whereas Legendary has a few, but much broader modifications. So Colossal is you have 100 stamina points, you increase your speed by 20, you increase your might and vitality by plus 3 each. Um, your damage improves to the next highest die and add one. So they're all 
uh, uh, small bespoke changes to reflect the fact that it's just a larger size. Um, so in some cases, that means it will be around roughly equivalent to legendary. In other cases, it, it's slightly better or slightly worse. So it, it's just different. Um, and uh, there's also a trick that comes with it about daunting size that modifies things specifically. So that's specifically to reflect extremely large creatures. Uh, and there's also swarm uh, because the idea of reflecting a swarm of very small characters or just a swarm of characters um, didn't quite fit with how minion works. Because minion, the idea of minion is you attack one character at a time and knock them down. This is the how you – a swarm of insects or a swarm of nanoites or a swarm of, of puddings or whatever. How those relate and work together is different. Um, so swarm – ultimately boils down to uh, uh, their one enemy. And um, if you attack a specific member of the swarm, then they kind of end up acting just like a minion. But generally speaking, it has a full hit point bonus uh, and you attack them all at once. So it's kind of even smaller than a minion. So we have the, the a gap between enemy and legendary, you kind of have colossal mostly fitting into that gap, and then now on the other side of minion, you have swarm, which is even smaller than uh, minion, but also a group that specifically works together as a unit. Uh, and then you have entity tags. Entity tags are now a, a reframing of something, again, that existed before. The, we had the undead and unseen tags, in uh, uh, servitor tags in Realms of Bugmire, um, that now you could have multiple entity tags. And most entity tags have mechanics that go with them that modify uh, the stat block. Um, uh, and so uh, we have um, Unseen, which is actually their demons, but there's no explicit modification of stat block. The, ex the modification is there are lots of tricks and spells that hinge off the Unseen tag. So it's not baked into the stat block, it's baked into the rest of the system. Uh, same with Undead, although they are also now weak and slowly damaged universally because just going through them, nearly all of them will reach the holy damage, so I just made it a, a part of the tag. Uh, Servitor, these are the um, uh, creatures that are controlled by someone else, um, and so they're immune to charm, scared, and possessed. Um, uh, and then we have uh, a whole bunch of new ones. Um, so we have Amphibious, uh, which is basically you can exist on water and land. Uh, aquatic, which is you just live underwater. Uh, and snarer, which is you can create webbing vines or other secretions that create difficult terrain, uh, just because we had a lot of things that shot webs, and so it made sense to have all of them have the same stats, and then when we talked about it, it made sense to kind of just give those all a tag, because it's a slightly different enemy type. Uh, there's ethereal, uh, because there's a lot of characters who are gaseous or otherwise intangible, and so it made sense to kind of lump them all together as one category, and to make it clear that across the board they're immune to blunt edge and stabbing unless it's masterwork weapons um and then there's ooze uh which is kind of the halfway point with ethereal so they're just resistant to all of those um but also because they're just oozes uh they're also immune to blind conditions because they don't have eyes um and then there are uh, a whole bunch of plants uh so there's a there's plant as a tag um because uh, there are a lot of evil, nasty plants in Threats and Curves, which is very cool, I think. Um, and so that's where I think it's nice when you have these server tags that you can not only categorize things well, and so you can, you can have spells and tricks to do things like, you know, this character can summon the plants uh, tag, or this character has access to the plant tag. 
but also uh, it means that if you do like to modify and, and, and tweak things, adding or subtracting these tags means you can make a very different kind of enemy, right? So like if you wanted to have uh, an undead tree, uh, you could then like ha take the zombie character and put the plant tag on them, or you can take uh, um, one of the moving plant tags and add the undead tag to them. Uh, and it's relatively easy to adjust things in that way. Uh, and the rest of the system kind of works through that. Now, granted, because of uh, uh, how these books develop, um, not these tags are going to be in the core realms of Pugmire book, because, frankly, core realms of Pugmire doesn't need all these tags, doesn't have over 150 enemies in uh, And also, uh, um, not all the spells uh, are, are equipped to reflect all these tags. Uh, going forward, obviously, there'll, there'll be more cross-connections and whatnot. Uh, but again, the, the goal, the idea here is that if you are, as a, as a game master, as a guide, going, well, I, I feel like uh, this character should be really effective against undead, I can just say, okay, cool, and you now have advantage against characters with the undead tag. It allows you to tweak and shit, uh, adjust the game very, very quickly because these tags are there to key off of and modify from. Um, if you see a spell you think well, it really should be effective against X tag, you can just add that on without having to handcraft those rules every single time. Uh, so, uh, yeah, aside from that, um, uh, we did things like we just uh, Drowning Suffocation, Gunpowder Panic, Seaworthiness. Those are all rules that came from uh, Pirates of my first edition. We brought them in, tweaked them, adjusted them, uh, made them updated to uh, second edition. Um, so they're all now working the way they should. Uh, and as I mentioned, um, there's over 150 characters here uh, across all 10 levels. So there's uh, uh, enemies from level 1 to level 10. Uh, and originally the plan was, again, we're just I was just going to uh, have one big book of, of, of monsters and call it a day. And it's not quite how things panned out, and there's a couple of reasons why. Uh, the first is that... Um, I intentionally did not give the writers a ton of I gave a, I gave writers a lot of direction, but I tried not to curtail their ideas too much. I basically said, here's what I don't want to see. Here's the things I needed converted and I gave those to specific people to make sure they handled them. Um, here are the kinds of things that I, I'd like to see, but I'm open to anything. Uh, and this again actually ended up being kind of a problem. Because uh, I think some of the writers end up going, I don't know what else you want. And because I was feeling pretty free form with it, I didn't entirely, wasn't always able to say, well, we're running low on this. So I'd have to kind of go through and look through ideas and say, well, I, I, I guess we can use more fey, maybe not so many plants anymore. Maybe I think we're done with spiders. Uh, so um, when I got the drafts in, and I kind of alluded to this before, I had to do a fair bit of compare and contrast. Um, there were some things that were functionally identical and uh, needed to be, and therefore one or both needed to change. Uh, there were some things that uh, were so close that it was odd that they were not referencing each other. Um, and again, there were categories of them where like, okay, we have lots of, of plants, so now I need to rewrite those so they take care of the plant thing. Uh, but the other one is that a lot of the writers did really embrace the idea that enemies in Pugmire are not 
synonymous with monster. There are monsters. There are things you are there primarily to defeat through force of arms or through your cunning and skill. Uh, but that doesn't mean that that's exclusively how they are. I mean, it's certainly even to the level of other fantasy games. Like, there are more things that you can have talk to or have a conversation with or um, uh, use your mental capacity to try to defeat. Uh, and also, uh, there are a lot of people who wanted to do, because I said, do not be the cult laboratory. There are a few people who pitched other organizations. Uh, and uh, to the point where I actually had to say, listen, there's a lot of cult of here. Uh, so I, I, the cult of laboratory is kind of well known. So let's try to find different ways of, on the pure name level, different ways to rename these so they stand out a little more distinctively amongst the other groups. Uh, so what I ended up doing pretty late in the game, actually, and this was something that, that Rich suggested, uh, was actually breaking it into two chapters. Uh, the first chapter, which is much, 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 much bigger, uh, is the threats chapter. Um, and this is basically going to be done a lot more like a, a, a classic uh, a collection of creatures. Um, so it's a purely alphabetical listing of antagonists uh, from A to Z, and uh, they're presented just as are. Um, so sometimes if there are multiple variations of them, they're clustered together. Uh, and other times when there are things that are pretty clearly connected, uh, I inverted or changed their names a little bit so that they lined up uh, more closely together on the page. So for example, um, we have uh, a fair number of spiders. And so uh, there's some like there's the amber spider or the fetch spider, or the paralysis spider. So I, I have them spider comma amber, spider comma fetch, spider comma paralysis. So that way there's a nice big chunk of these where all the spiders are. Um, but uh, uh, there are also number writers, which again, I really appreciated. They really took the whole idea that the tags allow you to do different takes on the same enemy and present a whole new way of looking at them. So uh, um, here's actually a, a great example. Uh, so um, Michaela Masala uh, presented the, the Cerebro Station. And uh, Cerebro Stations are basically robot crabs with, with brains in them, right? Um, uh, they're actually, there's a lot more going on. It's kind of cool. Uh, but basically, um, there's the crab drones, which are your level two minions. Uh, there's the uh, Cerebro Station tank, which is your level four enemy. And then there's the Cerebro Station cortex, the one that controls them all, which is your level six legendary character. Um, and so that's kind of an example. There's a few of these where there are these kind of stages of here's uh, the minion version, the enemy version, and the legendary version, or here's the enemy version and legendary version, or here's the minion version and the enemy version. Uh, and so those are more naturally uh, organized underneath the, the header of the larger thing that there are variations on. Um, uh, and there are some that are like they're they're connected, but they're not tied so tightly that they need to be organized under the same heading. Uh, so we have uh, uh, the Blood Wisp and the Guide Wisp, uh, which were two kind of fairly similar incorporeal characters, uh, but they're not identical. Um, and so uh, I, I asked them to be, I asked the writers to kind of go and 
talk to each other to find ways to kind of get them to connect together a little bit more. Um, and they renamed them both. Uh, so they both had the wisp at the end. So then I was able to kind of go wisp come blood, wisp come a guide. So you can see them right next to each other and how they relate and interact. But basically guide wisps are, oh, here's cool little floating lights and they'll take me somewhere. And blood wisps are, oh, here's cool floating lights and they will try to kill me. And they look very similar, but they are very different. So by reorganizing them, I was able to put them next to each other on the page. So you can see the, there's the good version, there's the bad version, but they're not connected, right? They're, they're completely different. They just happen to inhabit a similar space. And that's the point that they look, they can be confused for each other. Uh, um, and there are just some cool, weird demons in, in here, uh, which are, are awesome. Um, there's, you know, there's uh, the, the, the green fire demon, there's the deflagration demon, the negative demon. Um, and there's some characters that uh, showed up in other um, support, like there were like there were a lot of spiders. For some reason, we had a lot of spiders in Pugmire books. I don't know why that happens. It kind of just, over time, we got a spider infestation. So they convert a whole bunch of spiders. Um, and there's also the double, uh, which was in one of the uh, Mao adventures. And so uh, there's the goat thing. Um, that was another one of the Mal adventures, and so those all kind of get uh, pulled into this. Um, and yeah, so it, it, this is just, uh, uh, according to my Word document, almost 200 pages of enemies. There's a lot here. Um, and that actually led to another thing that I had to do, which is that uh, when you're looking at so many of these stat blocks together, you start to realize that there's in minor inconsistencies in how they're presented. Like I gave them, here's the stat block format, how I want to present it. But even inside of that, there's room for flexibility. Um, and so things like how speed is presented and what order words, uh, tricks are presented in. And again, like moving things into the common tricks. Uh, so I end up having to rewrite a lot of those just because I want to make sure that they looked consistent throughout. So if you glanced at one and saw the information in one spot. If you glanced at another one, you'd find the same information in the same spot. Uh, and then, of course, I also went through and made sure that Realms of Pugmire also adapted to that format, and future books are going to adapt to that format. So I, it's, it's gotten much tighter than in even uh, the Kickstarter version of Realms of Pugmire, but particularly first edition, it was a little more fluid and flexible, and I, I've really kind of tamped that down to make it as, as tight as possible, because again, I've had so many options to look at now, and so many different writers approaching it from different perspectives, I was able to really kind of say, okay, this is clearly a consistent uh, uh, way of, of doing things that's cl clear to me um, that I can then apply to future books. Uh, so that's the threats chapter. Um, but uh, as I kind of mentioned, um, there's uh, also there were a lot of uh, groups and, and just even characters. Um, and so I pulled those into a chapter I've called Curse, hence the name. Um, although the name came first, it just ended up being a very good, nice delineation between the threats and the curse. Um, uh, and so uh, this has some mildly uh, idiosyncratic characters, but basically the goal of all these is that they, they are grouped together not because they are derivations of the same thing but because they have a societal connection uh, so for example there were three kind of different forms of uh of, of mer person right there was catfish dogfish sting rat um these were all kind of aquatic folk 
Uh, and in Realms or in uh, Pirates of Pugmire, when they first showed up, they were just kind of random things. Now I have um, in, because they're part of the Curse chapter, I can lump them together as aquatic folk, and you can see them a little more collectively. Oh, I'm going to move it to an area that has people living in the Acid Sea. I now can go to the aquatic folk chapter and see all of them. Um, there are also uh, a couple of characters that loop together as scoundrels. These are both um, kinds of could be high level thieves or rogues, could be uh, criminal masterminds, could be um, uh, allies or enemies or antagonists, uh, but generally people who are on the wrong side of the law and can therefore fit kind of outside spaces. So, like, you know, one of them is a little more positioned as, as a crime lord, one's a little more positioned as uh, a vigilante, um, but you could easily be on the wrong side of these characters, but also they might be actually a high-level protagonist, someone that kind of help out with things. Um, the rest, however, fall into kind of more of the, the occult. There are three kind of rough cults here. Um, the, there's one called the Worshipful, Worshipful Followers of Old Maggie. Old Maggie is a demon uh, who controls dogs. Uh, and... There are cat mages who have managed to infiltrate into the society to, or who are leveraging the demon into using the controlled dogs for their own purposes. So there's this nice tension between um, the cats trying to placate the demon while also using the dogs that the demon has cowed to their own benefit. Uh, so it's not quite a, a cult so much as a, as a society uh, that the cats have infiltrated and tried to bend towards their own ends. Um, there's uh, the, the Palladium Society, um, which is um, a, a cat uh, uncovered uh, some kind of mystical equipment, and basically it, it, they're kind of vaguely astrological. Uh, uh, you know, they, they believe they can see destiny in the stars, and they're trying to get people to um, uh, uh, get all the, the wisdom of the heavenly spheres. Uh, uh, and uh, they're very much insisting that they're not a cult. Um, but, uh, you know, over time, they're starting to uh, infiltrate society's ranks and using their very uh, kind of hackneyed science to, to infiltrate. But it's not the cult laboratory. These not, this is basically, if the cult laboratory is, these are hard scientists who got the science wrong, this is, these are social scientists who got the science wrong. Uh, and they're much more of a of a social political cult in that regard, rather than uh, the more kind of we make weird mad science cult that the cult laboratory is. So they they occupy a different place. Um, and then finally, uh, I mentioned before, there's a lot of plant characters in here. Er, in here, part of the reason for that is uh, the children of Gmo, um, and uh, the children of Gmo are basically um, a group of uh, of children who have found and or created and or manipulated a wide variety of sentient plants and they're using it to try to reclaim the world um so uh, some of it is you have uh, uh actual ranked characters like uh the seedling and the leaf and the stem who are more your kind of cultists in the sense of they wear robes and they cast magic and they try to do things um, but then there's also uh, 
um, the hybrid who is actually part plant themselves because maybe the, you know either a spell has gone wrong or another member of the cult has tried to turn them into a plant, so they've become these kind of shock troops for them. Um, and even uh, uh, there are fortifications of, of you know plants that actually live inside these plants and have turned them into almost a kind of a protective structure. And to be honest, if you can't figure out how to tell a story about a cult of plant worshippers who are actually weaponizing plants and turning them into giant moving caves that blow people up, I really don't know how to help you because that whole concept is fantastic. All of these things are really, really cool and just ooze concepts, but the the, the curs category are those that have a little more kind of you need to have an adventure kind of walk up to these. These, these, these. You build a, a story or an adventure around these a little more intensively, um, where the threats are ones you could theoretically kind of just drop into an existing story a little more easily. So threats are just, I need something to fight, drop it in. Um, and not all, again, not all of them are fighty. Uh, um, there are some like uh, the Gastro Dragon, which is this extremely powerful dragon that just wants to be friends, but can't really communicate that well. Um, so if you don't want to be friends with the Gasher Dragon, it will hurt you. But if you want to be friends with it, it could be a really powerful friend. Um, but also the Gasher Dragon is the kind of thing that you can just stumble across. Whereas with the Curs, these are more, you need to go out and find these people or you're building a story up, up around these people. So that was kind of, uh, the division I was, was going for between those two. Um, and then finally, um, like I said, uh, the encounters, the idea is that these are just, uh, how to show you how to take these things and and put them together so uh, uh travis leg wrote up a bunch of different uh scenarios uh to kind of give you a sense of they're not fully fleshed out they're more just kind of here's a here's a plot hook here's some of the uh enemies in the book that we reference and here's how they connect together and how you can get a kind of a high level plot for all of these things uh so give people a little more adventure advice um and then uh after we did all this i got it all together um again it took a lot more crushing i expect there would be a fair amount of reading to check the math on things but I, the amount of getting things to line up and make sure they all work together it, it was it was a lot more work than i expected um I, it was closer to developing the core book all over again and i was just not prepared for that um and again there's nothing to do with the writers it was just a, a level of interconnectivity that makes the game the book better but i just didn't anticipate going in uh, so uh, it was a learning experience for me and it was just a project that was very different from what we used to um, and also because it's a different kind of project uh the art doesn't work the same way like you know a lot of our art is based around the idea that they're going to be rough chapters and those chapters have a, a, a certain structure and a certain amount of a quarter page per page count and a half page or a full page between the chapters and and whatnot there's a certain kind of flow to these that just here 150 enemies doesn't quite work um and so not quite ready to talk about our solution yet uh but suffice to say um rich and i had some really cool conversations about and, and potentially a creative solution on how to get a lot closer to that inspired by some of the older school gaming that pugmire has always been inspired by uh that i think ultimately will be be very very exciting uh but again not quite ready to to talk about that yet um uh but that's it that that's so uh that's threats and curse um that was a very different style of of book to design 
Um, it was a, it was a new experience for me, and I've been doing this for over 20 years. So um, when I say things like each project is unique and has its own challenges, this is a perfect example of it. Um, I never quite done just a big collection of monsters, and I went in expecting it to be a certain thing, and it was just a lot more than that. Uh, but in the end, um, I'm extremely proud of the book that the team put together. Um, I think they all did a fantastic job. Um, uh, they all took all of my heavy uh, notes and red lines and, and changing my mind on how I want to do things with, with way more grace than possibly I would have shown. Um, so uh, I, I, I def definitely, definitely appreciate the team that uh, worked on that. Um, and so, yeah, uh, we're, you'll hopefully be able to uh, get a glimpse of it in the future. I'll probably start posting up um, some examples from it uh, in the coming months. Uh, or uh, maybe you've already seen some of those, depending on when this uh, episode airs. Uh, but suffice to say, um, uh, it's a book that's going to be really fun. And it really is genuinely, I think, going to be a bit more special than just, oh, here's a bunch of monsters. Uh, it, it, it does all that. It gives you everything you want out of a book that is designed like that. But I think there's a little bit more there. And it, it has a special Pugmire touch that I think uh, makes it just a little, a little special. So I hope y'all enjoy that. Um, and it's been cool to kind of do one of these um, design diaries again. Uh, um, so maybe uh, I will uh, get and do this again. Maybe I can uh, grab uh, Lauren Roy and we can talk over how we did uh, Curious Cats. Because that was uh, my first, again, new to me experience. Uh, my first time directly co-developing uh, uh, with a developer on a book like this. Um, and taking a book from a core rule book into a supplement there's a lot of additional challenges that came with that um some of the things that we wanted to do with that book um ended up causing some, some interesting and cool uh changes to to the material uh in a very additive way it doesn't invalidate what came before but rather it expands and and uh, recontextualizes it all um so yeah maybe um we could either talk about that in in the future time but this was so much a book of just me staring at Word documents for months at a time, uh, that, that really made more sense to me to kind of just sit down and present this all for you. So uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I, I hope that uh, you found it useful to get uh, inside the mindset of, of this kind of level of design. Uh, and certainly uh, keep an eye out for uh, threats and curves, um, whether we crowdfund it or whether it comes out on sale. Um, I, I think Again, y'all really uh, enjoy it. I think it'll be a really fun book. Uh, and uh, if you want to talk to me online, um, I am available on some social media websites. Uh, I've, I've said a few times now, um, I'm kind of phasing out of the big ones like Facebook and Twitter. Uh, but if you do a search for Pugsteady, that's my company website, that's P-U-G-S-T-E-A-D-Y, uh, that'll, worst case scenario, take you to my website where you can see all the stuff I'm working on, except for my newsletter, where you can get uh, monthly updates on what's happening with me. Or you could just come to uh, the Onyx Path Discord. Uh, I'm usually um, hanging out there, not only in spaces like the Realms of Pugmire channel, but also even in things like Off Topic in general. Um, it, it's just, frankly, it's just a cool community to hang out in. So uh, that's really fun to have a conversation with me. That, that's the, the best place to find me. So uh, with that said, I hope you enjoyed this. And I look forward to uh, y'all hearing from the rest of my colleagues uh, next week. And until then, many worlds. Thank you.